What's up, guys? Welcome back to Think Big Bodybuilding Media. I'm Scott McNally, and of course, I am back finally with Scott Stevenson. This is our 100th episode, man. Uh, we have sure. a bunch of studies that we're going to look at. We actually have a series, uh, a mini series, if you will, over the next three episodes. Scott's going to bring us studies. This today is going to be about training specifically. Uh, I'm about to turn it over to him. After that, we do have uh, one question from uh, one of our Patreon members. So we're going to tackle this stuff. We're going to hit that question at the end. And then if you guys have any questions about anything we talk about today, uh, we were considering doing this episode and then doing a follow-up to do questions about the episode. And then from there, getting into the next batch of studies. So I, uh, I'm ready to sit back and uh, listen to you, Professor. Oh, I should also mention, too, we're brought to you by truenutrition.com. So, uh, all right. What's up, man? It's been a long time. This is our 100th episode. Yeah. Right, well, yeah, you're, you've climbed out of the, the COVID pit. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, That's finally good. back. Yeah. We, it wasn't an intentional, like, let's build the uh, anticipation in the, for the 100th episode. There was no choice in the matter to some degree. Yeah. Okay. So, I'm glad you're back, brother. I'm glad to As be back. Is. Yeah, thank you, man. Yeah. Still recovering. Oh, speaking of true nutrition. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, I was going to say, I mentioned, I, I, I don't know if you've followed on Instagram. I've just started a facetious sort of um, hashtagging of the serial gains nation. Have you seen I've any seen of that? that. Yeah, yeah. Know. Yeah, so that's what I'm doing post-workout is a box of cereal. That's kind of my standard. And people are slowly, they're slowly joining the nation, which takes in people from all creeds and colors anywhere around the world. We're a worldwide nation, so to speak. I just called it that because people use the nation thing all the time, so I thought it'd sound funny. Yeah, yeah. But actually, I'm using true nutrition stuff for my protein. Oh, okay. my way isolate. I thought so, you were going to say Dante was making yeah. cereal now. Lucky charms. No, but he should. I know, right? Well, they've got some of the protein cereals. There's the cereal. There's Matt Porter has one. Oh, yeah, Matt yeah. Matt Porter approved. His, yeah. His, and then there's another uh, schoolyard cereal or some shit like that. I, they send me text messages all the time, but those are good. Yeah. And we do accept people who are dieting who want to be part of the Cereal Gains Nation if they want to use those cereals that are like zero carb, low, that's fine. You can join. You're not considered a second class netizen of the cereal gains nation just cereal because you're using nation. a protein based cereal. I like cool. that. Yeah. I like that. Where, when, are, yeah. when do you come it's out with the shirts? When do you come out with the shirts? Cereal gains nation. I should soon. Like, yeah. there's a guy, Nick Weary, I think that's how you say his name. He trains at, at uh, Dave, Derek Oslin's gym where I've been training. And, uh, Nick is, I think, the number five ranked competitive eater in the world. Okay. I think that's what he told me. Yeah. Like, he does the Nathan's Hot Dog Challenge, all that kind of shit. Okay. He's a badass bodybuilder, too, but he's sort of our poster boy. Basically. Oh, yeah? So, I'll shout out to Nick if you watch this. He did a three boxes of Lucky Charms <laughs> challenge on for St. Patrick's Day. The green ones that make your milk green. Oh, my God. Now it took him, like, around a half an hour, something like that. He's a monster. No so, kidding. We'll see. I'm I'm trying. Like I suggested this to him. This will be on his. He and his his uh, girlfriend, Miki. She's the number one female ranked competitive eater in the world. She's just ridiculous. That house is a powerhouse. Find then. her. She, she's just. I just watched a thing. She would did the um, the big Texan in uh, Albuquerque. Okay. And she ate two of them in just over an hour. You're kidding. Get the thing free. I did it in like 52 minutes a long time ago. Okay. And she just nonchalantly eats. There's no mess. There's no no effort. She just like sat there and just ate the, ate two of them. 
Maybe we that should have her on. We should have the two of them on Gee. and get some uh, get we, some insight, you know, on pushing our cereal intake up, how that works. I we talk, he and I have been talking shop about that all the time. Like, he's, <laughs> he, like all the stuff that they do, I'm getting the insight as to how those people can train to do that. Yeah. She's just she's just a natural. She literally the food even tastes good to her. Yeah. Whereas he doesn't have like the biggest stomach. He does not gift. He's just got a strong strong mentality, so he can push himself through. Yeah. Um, and that's what makes him as good as he is to some degree. Obviously, he's got some gifts otherwise. But she's I I, I don't I haven't asked him this, but. She might be better than him on all the events in general. I don't know. Huh. She's the best in the world among the among the women. Well, you definitely have to so, be able to eat cereal. You got to be able to eat, period, in order to grow. But you also have to know yes. how to train. What are we what are what right. what's what's our game plan okay. for today? So there's so often this is sort I'm trying all trying to sort of bridge the gap between the bros who think science sucks and a lot of the scientists don't have that reciprocal sort of feeling about the bros, but there's a connection there. As I say, the, the science that happens, quote unquote, in the ivory tower is in the ivory tower is, is in the same universe. It's in the same town as the gym where the bros figure things out. So I wanted to put together just some basic research studies that confirm the things that the bros know about a variety of things that we've sort of figured out. It's infiltrated into our mindset, and some of it's just from empirical learning, a little bit of dash of science here, but give some solidity to that. And then also add a little bit of nuance to that in- information as well <clears throat> through the science that's out there. Yeah, That's the whole point of science is not to just like, you know, generate all these data and publish this so it can be lodged away in a, in a you know, in the library somewhere, uh, you know, deep in the annals of Google Scholar or PubMed. Instead, it's to be used by people. So I'm trying to like take that information, say, here's some usable stuff, apply this, and this can help you be a better bodybuilder. So right on. we got it's kind of a three part series. Today's going to be training. I think next week we'll do some drug related stuff, and there's also nutrition related stuff. So sort of a grouping of just a few studies that all sort the information sort of converge onto a general idea related to training, drugs, and um, and nutrition. So today's training. Okay, cool. So with that, if you can pull, we've got just three, four main slides and a summary slide. You can pull that first one up. All right. I'll look at it here. Now, this is not the summary slide, correct? You want the actual, the first one no, that says damage the, with dissection? Damage with discretion. Or discretion. Oh, I can't. Yeah. I got to get closer in order to read that. <laughs> Does it fill the whole screen? I'd like people to be able to read it. Of Let's see. Let me make sure I get it up there. they won't be able to, but... Boom. We are full screen mode at this point. Okay. Cool. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> a couple things. Um, there's a basic idea that we know, people know, like any trainer knows this. Sometimes trainers don't pay attention to this, but first time you come in to train, if you've been training for a while, you've never trained before, you'll get really, really sore. Yeah. And then the next time you train those muscle groups... There's something called a repeated bout effect or protective effect of that previous injurious bout so you don't get a sore the next time. Yeah. So you, know, you come in and do like 10 sets of squats and you haven't been training, you're going to be just annihilated. But if you've been deep in training for months, you try to do 10 sets of squats, that's still a hell of a workout, but you won't be nearly as critical otherwise. Yeah. So keep that, keep that in mind. So 
first study for people, the first thing that kind of people look at is in the upper left here. Okay. And the idea that has been put forth in many acute studies, and it does make sense, is that each time you train, you turn on muscle protein synthesis. Mm. And you can measure that after training. And to the extent, and muscle protein synthesis and breakdown generally go hand in hand. As one goes up, so does the other. So they're kind of directly related. And the idea, of course, is that synthesis will exceed breakdown. Yeah. So you, you break down the muscle, so to speak, with the training, and you incur the injury. And then you have more synthesis than breakdown. And because of that, you accumulate muscle protein, and the muscle cells get bigger. Yeah. Maybe you even get more of them if hyperplasia is in play. So the thing that was interesting is when people started measuring muscle protein synthesis, like at the beginning of a, tra a training period, and then looking to see if that was predictive of how much growth someone got over the training period, the correlations were atrocious. Okay. It was basically like you're, you're not you're not predictive at all, like nothing, um, yeah. not significant, you know, around zero negative numbers. In fact, if you look in that, and this might be hard to see, I apologize. I wanted to kind of make this simple. People might be able to screen capture and zoom in. In this particular study, this was Damas et al. I've talked about this on the podcast, I believe, before. They measured myo myofibular protein synthesis beginning of this training period, 12 weeks long. And when they looked at how much growth was evoked over the course of the training, the training period, the correlation was negative 0.221. Wow. So, and it was non-significant. So that means nothing. So perfect one-to-one -one correlation, the R value, the correlation is one. Zero means there's no association whatsoever between the two things you're looking at. So it was zilch. So that doesn't seem to match this idea that if you turn on protein synthesis really robustly, that, and you do that every day over the course of your training period, you're going to get the most muscle growth. Because at day one, there was no correlation between what eventually happened weeks down the road. But if they waited till week three, which is you're getting past that, you're getting that repeated bout effect in play, that protective effect is there. Now you're not nearly as sore and the injury isn't quite as obvious. You're not like, you're not doing the kamikaze when you go to sit on the toilet where like, holy shit, just dive bombing. Because your legs hurt so much. Yeah, yeah. Once you're past that in week three, then they measured protein synthesis. And you can see in that graph, and what I've written there is that in week three, and then at the end of the training, after you're past that initial period of all the soreness and pain, then the correlation is like 0.9. Hmm. Super strongly correlated. That's, re that's actually a really, really, really impressive correlation. That means that literally about 80% of the variance in, as to how much someone's going to grow can be explained by the protein synthetic uh, effect of the, of the training bouts, which mm. makes sense biologically. Yeah. The more you turn on protein synthesis, the more you grow. So what's going on there initially, such that the correlation is for naught? Well, that's when people are getting sore. A couple things. I've talked about it in one way is that you've got so much damage that your protein synthesis is, and there's some limits there, of course, is just going to try to keep up with the damage that you've incurred. And that the other way of looking at that, the other side of that same coin is that because you, it's, you're, it's new and novel to you and you get so, so sore, there's so much injury, the muscle protein breakdown is really substantial. So even if you had a strong protein synthetic 
the fact from a training bout, if you're starting off and you're fresh and you and you get really really sore, you've got so much muscle protein breakdown that it doesn't amount to much. Yeah. And the thing we know from the muscle soreness literature is the training soreness and muscle breakdowns all over the place. I get sore really really easily. I mentioned John Meadows is someone who doesn't tend to get sore and he's grown really really well with. He I just talked to him like a week or so ago and. He, he reminded me that when he made his like a big growth spurt when he started putting intra workouts in mm. back in the day and people thought he was a shill you know the way he said that but is what he, he experienced mm-hmm. he wasn't getting sore whatsoever mm. his best growth decades into training happened with no muscle soreness really whatsoever yeah and that was associated with that intra workout um, that he was uh, that he was for teen nation I think they had the I can't remember what the name of the, the product was, but John was sort of the poster boy for that. Okay. So so this tells us that being super duper sore is not really the greatest thing, right? Because what you're evoking there acutely isn't contributing to the long-term gains, which is what we want in muscle mass. Yeah. So doing too much isn't the best thing. So the next study here, if you look to the right, you'll see a couple plots. This is a very, like literally in the title of the... Uh, of the of the publication, they put the no gain, no gain, no pain, no gain is there, because they wanted to see what would happen if you did what smart personal trainers do, and start somebody off with really really lower intensity, lower volume training initially, yeah. which will still get that protective effect. Uh huh. You do just a little bit, just do like one set of squats, one set of what whatever, you'll get a, maybe a little bit of soreness, but nothing over the top and ease your way into training, what does that mean? Do you have to blast into training and then just blast through that first three or four weeks, two or three weeks, can you still grow? So take a look at the um, the rightmost plot there, and you can see I've written in red, avoid damage. Those are, are That's a plot showing creatine kinase in the two groups that they had. So one group spent three weeks easing their way in as far as training volume, and you can see it on the left plot. If you look on the right plot, the bottom line there that's that's below that dotted line across the graph, mm-hmm. that shows the creatine kinase levels in the blood of that group, the group that eased their way in. Hmm. So creatine kinase gets released from damaged muscle. You get the inflammation, the plasma membrane, the cell membrane becomes porous, and enzymes leak out like creatine kinase. Hmm. So that's a, a traditional marker of muscle damage Basically, using that that level that they've got dotted there, which is suggestive of muscle injury, they avoided that all the way through for the 11 weeks of training that they did. Now, look at the other plot that's above that one for much of those 11 weeks. In the fourth week, that group came in, and they wanted to try to accrue as much volume over that over the uh, as the other group. Um, until the end of the training period. So they did higher volume um, in each of those weeks to try to get the same amount of training done, essentially. And the creatine kinase went sky high. Hmm. You can see that the first plot is like at, at rest. That's the baseline, no training. And then for the next one, two, three, four weeks, their creatine kinase was sky high because they were killing them. Okay. It, all, it took like four weeks for them to bring that creatine kinase down. So they were sore as Jesus. Yeah. Um, during those first four weeks and finally got under control. Well, what happened? Did, the, did that group who just went for broke get any better? Did they grow any better? Did they get any any stronger? No. Hmm. 
So look at the bottom there. The increase in quad size for the no pain group, that just spent like three extra weeks easing their way in, was a was about six and a half percent. In the group that really pushed it, seven and a half percent. That's basically the same. Hmm. The increase in strength that they showed in the training exercises, the ones that they measured, I think it may be the leg press, was basically twenty five percent, twenty six percent for each. Okay. So. You can, as long as you spend some time easing your way in, you're going to get the same gains. Going through that period of crazy soreness doesn't help Hmm. as long as you give yourself a little bit of extra time to ease your way into the training. Could you do that in just one or two weeks? I would bet you would. That protective effect can happen in just one one bout. You could probably go three or four bouts of sub-damaging and elicit that in the way they did because by the fourth or fifth or sixth week in, they're they're doing the same work essentially as the other group hmm. that was that was sort of playing catch up and sore as shit for like a month before they finally brought the muscle damage down in the last few weeks of the training. Yeah. So the proofs in the pudding, like you can grow just as well without destroying yourself. That's exactly what John experienced. Mm-hmm. He had his best best growth without being extra sore. And from the first study that in, in this slide, it shows. That soreness, when you're, when you're breaking into a program, when you're really sore like that, the muscle protein synthesis, which is, which is what you want to make happen for growth, huge correlation after the soreness is gone. If you're super sore, you're wasting it. You're yeah. having too much breakdown and or the protein synthesis is just playing catch up Listen to the injury that you brought. I, I got to yeah. tell you too, man, I feel like that's something I wish I understood sooner. I think about, I think about like leg training where I had destroyed my legs so bad, so hard, it would take forever to get them to recover. Whereas, did I really have to do what I did? And I found that if I do less, I can get better growth now today. I, I It's just a thing, man, where I feel like we all want to just freaking kill ourselves so hard on everything. Uh, you know, I mean, it's like if if a gram is good, or if 500 milligrams is good, then a gram has to be better, and two grams has to be magical. Right. You know what I mean? Well, here's the thing, too. Like, and, and this points, and I'm going to get into this today, actually, as well. Okay. Is instead of doing, you know, 20 sets for your legs or 15 sets. Yeah. Let's say 15 once a week, and you just destroy yourself, and you spend the next, you know, three or four days sore, which mm-hmm. can happen. That protective effect is also variable. Some people have it strongly. I'm always sore. I just tend to get sore. What about doing five sets on Monday, five sets on Wednesday, and five sets on Friday Yeah, with a higher frequency? That's going to avoid the soreness. Yep. And then if you think about it in the context of this first study, you're never, you're never d- basically digging the hole yes. so much in terms of the breakdown and the, using up your protein synthesis with this monstrous workout. Instead, you're giving workouts that are stimulating yeah. to some degree. And avoid and making sure that that protein synthesis is directed towards accruing muscle size over the course of your training period. That makes total Last, sense to me. Say your mesocycle. Yeah. So yeah, avoiding. So you're exactly right. This is this is why for some people higher frequency stuff is going to work better um, because you get the same training volume in and va- there's a dose response with training volume. Mm-hmm. Fifteen sets once a week versus five sets three times a week. Check my math three times five. <laughs> it's the same training volume. Yeah. So 
but there's more nuance to that. So, like, sometimes hmm. the studies don't suggest we're going to get to this actually okay. in just a second here that the frequency doesn't always play. So that's a good segue, Scott. Hey, what's going on, guys? Thanks for watching another podcast here at Think Big Bodybuilding Media. And thank you to our great sponsor, TrueNutrition.com, for making this all possible. TrueNutrition.com is owned by Dante Trudell, the creator of DC Training. He wanted to create a supplement company that offered high-quality third-party tested supplements at a fair price. High-quality protein powders, just about every type you could think of. Huge variety of flavors, plus health and performance supplements. Check them out, TrueNutrition.com. And hey, if you use our code ADVICES, you directly support our podcasting. Thanks, guys. Let's get back to the program. So let's pull up um, Let's pull up the next slide. All right. Got it. And uh, it says big picture programming. Uh, yes. Okay. So <clears throat> on the left there, I've got a study which I've referred to previously and uh, I've talked about this so this was um there's some Brazilians involved I think uh I think Stu I'm not sure if Stu Phillips was on this one or not but um it's a Brazilian group that's done a lot of this work that I'm talking about here today and what they wanted to do was test the effect of frequencies sort of the way they captured it but literally it was also volume and they used this one leg training method this this model for mm. examining muscle growth, which I think is just brilliant. It's yeah. actually what I used in my dissertation. We just trained one leg and used the other leg as a control. So it's kind of like, it's basically like having twins. You've got one twin that gets one treatment and the other twin gets the other treatment, either no treatment or a different treatment. In this case, every person in the study trained one leg five times a week and the other leg either twice or three times a week. So they literally had three training conditions. But the cool thing is, is that you've got, you don't have to have that many subjects because one leg is getting trained five times a week huh, yeah. and the other leg is getting trained for a lower frequency and which was in this case also a lower volume. So each workout was just three sets of knee extensions taking a failure in the nine to 12 rep range okay. and they were progressively increasing. So, and these were, uh, these were un, untrained individuals. So that plot there that uh, is on the left side that shows the increase in in this case the vastus lateralis muscle which is your lateral quad um, with an MRI they measured size there and it increased in all cases whether it was trained five times a week which is 15 sets mm -hmm. or two or three times a week which is six or nine sets and it, it was a progressive increase and that shows just the different plots for those different training conditions and there was no difference it did not make a difference whatsoever, um, whether it was five times a week or two or three times a week, on average. Okay. So when you average everything together, and that's what happens, this is sort, sort of the beauty of science is you can take those averages and without knowing anything about the individual, other than he is among the population of people studied in that study, those averages and the statistics that we use to evaluate those averages allow you to predict what you might expect on average hmm. for an individual who matches those subject characteristics. Yeah. But it's not going to tell you exactly because everyone's a snowflake, right? Everyone's different Yeah, to some degree. And so that's what they did. I'm going to get to that in just a second, but I've got a, one more study, which was really very cool as well that they did, and it ties in as well. So 
Um, they asked the question, and this is the same group. They had, um, they, I believe, these were trained individuals, okay. which is pretty cool because um, they made some made some growth here. They took them and uh, had one leg train, just basically essentially the same way. Oh, they were doing leg presses and knee extensions, and they did. Um, four sets of leg presses and four sets of knee extensions at that nine to 12 rep max range. Okay. Um, with, uh, one leg and then the other leg, they did, uh, four different workouts. So they're training four times a week. So somewhere in the middle of their previous study. So in one of the, in, in general, there was more volume and they rotated these three, these four workouts. And I'm not going to go through all the details, but one of them included a high rep day. Mm-hmm. Um, where they were doing like, I think like 15 to 25 reps per sets. There was another day where they did a little more volume. They did 12 sets of volume as versus just the, uh, the eight yeah. and the other leg, which is the control leg. That leg got eight sets, the same every workout. And then they also had some eccentric only reps. So they were having a, they were lifting and then letting them just lower the weight. So really focusing on that eccentric, which is going to create more soreness um, but you get more tension there, and we'll talk more about why eccentric is important. So they were they're employing what a lot of people do, which is a great way to keep variety in your training. You don't go in the gym every single day and do the same damn thing. It's like, yeah. okay, leg press, knee extensions, same rep range, same number of sets. That'll bore the shit out of you. Instead, they they mix it up. And what happened there was, if you look on the right, there was a little bit more. Myo, uh, myofibular protein synthesis in the variable group, which is on the right, where they varied the workouts versus the control, just a little bit. So you would expect that, you know, and they had, they had enough subjects that they had good statistical power that that might increase, um, mean that more protein synthesis at the end, and they measured this at the end of the training period, yeah. would mean more growth. That's kind of what the other story study told us with the 90%. Um, it, but however, if you look on the left plot there those are the individual plot individual points for the left leg and the right leg of all the subjects and the bar graph are the averages that's behind there okay and the change in vastus lateralis csa was literally dead on it's like 7.5 7.8 percent huh. it's exactly the same so the variation didn't matter and even though they had a little more muscle protein synthesis with the very, very training where they change things up every training day. Hmm. So let's go to the next slide. So you're telling me that not changing it up was just about as effective as changing as it up. Far as, as far as yeah, increasing muscle size, yes. Okay. Even though there's a little more protein synthesis yeah. that was brought about from what they could tell. So that tells us that's a strong correlation, but it's not the entire picture. Okay. I got and the next slide. Note two. Okay, cool. And let's just leave that one there. But okay. note two that in the variable group, they were doing one of their days was eccentrics only. Okay. In terms of the reps. That'll make you sore. That's a lot of damage. Oh, I see. Right there. Yeah. Can make you sore. So looking at this next slide here. So here's what's, what's interesting. So um, this is that same study on the left here. And the question is sort of, is more volume better? So looking at that same study, the one we've been talking about here just now, mm -hmm. is they looked at the m muscle protein synthesis 
versus the total training volume. And there was a slight correlation there. They added up the training volume over the eight weeks. That's the plot on the upper left, the rightmost one that's labeled E. Okay. Nice correlation there. It's 0.355. It was significant. They looked at the training, total training volume in the, in the, uh, the 17th session, so near the end. And the, the protein synthesis was greater as a function of the training volume. So when you, every time you train, there's going to be an increase in protein synthesis and also an increase in protein breakdown. And those generally go hand in hand. Muscle protein breakdown is almost never measured. It's very methodologically difficult to do that. So it's sort of like this, um, it's like the dark batter version in, in, in this realm of exercise physiology where like we kind of like there's, we know that that's going on, but usually is not me measured. Mm -hmm. So here's the interesting thing. Look on the bottom left there. Okay. If you plot the eight-week total training volume, and we know training volume turned on protein synthesis more from everything I've just mentioned. If you, if you look at training volume versus the change in quad cross or vastus lateralis cross-sectional area, there was a negative correlation. Hmm. So the more people tended to train, the less they grew. Okay. Which which suggests that even though more volume turns on more protein synthesis more so, more volume can also be excessive. Mm, yeah. Train too much, you turn on breakdown breakdown too much. So the the black matter portion of our equation, the muscle protein breakdown can be excessive. Yeah. To the point where you don't have a positive protein balance. I've been there. That's what matters. So muscle I, protein Yes, right. I know I've had those workouts, the, those weeks. The very first study. So I don't b believe they looked at muscle soreness mm. or gathered that or measured it. But from the first slide, we see that too much where you're sore does not bode well for making gains. Yeah. So more total training volume is a stronger st uh, stimulus. You can see that from more protein synthesis. But what matters is the balance of synthesis versus have to have a positive protein balance and in this case apparently that was not the case more training volume generally speaking meant less muscle growth yeah in this study so the training volume didn't really help uh, or the, the variety didn't really help it there was a little bit more training volume just by the way by the way they set that up mm -hmm. just a, just a tad i think it was like literally like four or five percent in reading the text okay so and it increased protein synthesis a little bit. So a little bit of variation. And the workouts were totally different. But the training volume was just about the same the way they quantified it. Huh. You're only doing two exercises. So this wasn't a function of like, you know, do you count a bench press as a, a tricep exercise? You know, sometimes there's an issue with counting training volume, okay. whether it's an isolation or a compound. This was just leg press and using the same exercise, leg press and knee extension. So they just varied the sets, the number of reps and the set configuration. Okay. So, so a little bit of training variety, training variety, like mixing it up that adds a little bit of volume doesn't really do much for you. In fact, it can make it such there's too much volume. So <clears throat> remember the study where they train one leg five times a week and the other leg either two or three times a week. Yes. On average, it didn't matter. The growth was the same on average. Mm-hmm. 
Well, those same brilliant researchers, I, I love that they did this. They went back and they reevaluated the individual data. Okay. So on the right side of the slide there, you see um, a figure with two plots. And the one on the left shows the two, uh, the, the training volume for the high frequency five times a week versus the lower frequency. And what they did is they just took those two or three times a week and just considered those as one. So they kind of made that one condition for comparison purposes. Okay. Because basically everything was the same there. So on the left, you see obviously five times a week, much more training volume. And on the right, two or three times a week, much less training volume. All those plots from the high volume or high frequency to the low volume, low frequency go from, the, go from high to low. But what happened in terms of muscle size, and I've covered this one on a few podcasts, and here, here's one of them, and we've actually had this up as a slide previously, this rightmost plot. Those are the individual data points for changes in muscle size hmm. in the vastus lateralis. They're all over the place. Yeah. So if you look look on the upper right, and sorry, there's, uh, there's some words written over there. I, I kind of had to cover it up. There is a person there who had a change in quad cross or vast lattice cross sectional area that was about 20% in the high frequency. And they're the highest plot on the rightmost set of, of dots. They're at nearly 30% for the low frequency. Hmm. So that person, they responded really, really well. 20% increase in size is phenomenal growth. Yeah. For a, a couple months of training. 30% is just off the charts. Yeah. But they did significantly better from a practical standpoint with low volume versus the higher volume. Okay. But they, they responded really well in either. So that, for them, from high frequency to low frequency, the, the, the line goes up. Yeah. But if you look at all those, a lot of those lines going from left to right, the line goes down. Hmm. Those are people who did better with the high-frequency, high-volume and not nearly as well with the low-frequency, low-volume. Hmm. And then when they went and looked at it, it was very interesting. About one-third of the people did better with high-frequency, high-volume. One-third did better with low-frequency, low-volume. And one-third, it didn't matter. Huh. The growth responses were about the same when they broke it down. But they didn't compare, you, just to be clear, they didn't compare high-frequency, low-volume. Though. That's not on here, right? No, because the way they set their training up, because it's a good question, I'm glad you asked that, is that they did five days a week and it was three sets each training training uh, session. I see. For that leg. You. Okay. And then the other, so like imagine you go in, let's say your left leg is getting hit five times a week. You go in on Monday and you train the left leg and then you train the right leg the same. And then Tuesday you go in and just train the left leg. Yeah. And then then you go on Wednesday and just train the left leg. Yeah. If you're in the two times a week, you might go on Thursday and train the left leg and the right leg. And then you go on Friday and train the left leg. Huh. Okay. Just three sets each time. So they couched it as training frequency, but volume was also also varied here. So another way to do that would be exactly what, what I suggest people do, like what I mentioned before. You take those 15 sets and spread them out over three workouts as opposed to putting them in one. Yeah. But this, this, this study, they did not do that. That's another way to configure the study, which is a great way to do it. It's a better way to evaluate frequency in and of itself. So yeah. this one basically evaluated 
both frequency and volume. Yeah. That's why I keep saying those things together because they didn't distinguish between the two. Five times a week is both high frequency and high volume. Two times or three times a week is both lower frequency and lower volume. Gotcha. So so one-third did better with the higher frequency, high volume. One-third did better with the lower frequency, low volume. And one-third did, didn't matter. They were equally, equally effective for this duration of this training program. But look at the... Where the, where the dots are. There are some people that are down close to zero. Like there's, if you look on the right, at the lowest point on the right set of points on that rightmost plot there, mm -hmm. there's somebody who had a negative increase in size for the it lower frequency. Yeah, at the very bottom. There's a couple, isn't yeah. there? There's just one. That There's one person who had basically just barely broke above zero. Okay. Um. That, would, that dotted line there is what they sort of considered non-responsiveness. I see. So that I see. Did not respond to high frequency or low frequency. I gotcha. He was the only non-responder to both training modes, huh. both training volume slash frequencies. But the the other guy who didn't get anything out of the low frequency, he actually did okay. He got about seven percent. I see. Like, just from eyeballing the graph there with the high frequency, so he was. This is where people would say, um, you may be a non-responder to a given training regime, yeah, but you're not an absolute non-responder. There's something you can find something that's going to work, yeah. So there's only one instance in this study where that person was, according to the the two ways that that person trained, five times a week or even two or three. I don't know which that person was. That poor that poor sod didn't <laughs> grow from anything. Yeah. Nothing worked. So, I mean, that must have really sucked, right, you know, to go through all of that. But well, who knows? There may have been other things. We're going to get into nutrition um, in another podcast. Okay. That plays a big role, too, and they weren't paying attention to that. So this mm. is just the training. So this is very cool stuff. This is basically, in the bottom line here I've written there is that growth is highly variable generally. So some people, like the one guy, can you imagine if, like, uh, the guy who had, like, the, you know, the, what is it about, 27% increase on the lower frequency and, like, 20%, he's the best responder overall for sure. Hmm. He Like, he could have gone in twice a week, gone in twice a week. Can you imagine this? Like, this, so here's the scenario. You've got that, that, um, that guy who, uh, any of those two bottom ones who basically got just over zero or literally mathematically negative muscle growth from training twice a week. Mm -hmm. And they happen to be training partners with <laughs> that guy who got 27% training twice a week. Yeah. Like that's like, he just blew them out of the water. Like he's going to be like, this was only, I think eight weeks of training. So that's 16 workouts. Like he's seen a one more than a one and a half, like a one and a half percent increase in size every time he comes in yeah that's crazy like literally his quad's gonna look bigger every time he goes in the gym and the other guy is getting nothing zilch zippo nada yeah he's just like dead in the water as far as muscle growth goes so that's what happens with people who are genetically gifted they outpace their peers usually right from the get-go mm -hmm. but the, the the good thing here is well one to know that there's it's highly variable some people are just genetically gifted, but the big thing is that, like, for some of those, if you look at some of those lines, are the most slanted. Like, I'm looking at one now; it's about 22% with high frequency, and looks like about 7% with low frequency. 
So okay. like that's a that's a threefold difference, basically. Hmm. High frequency, high volume is the way to go for that person. That's gonna work for them. But there are other people who are very much the opposite. They didn't do well at all with the uh, with the high frequency high volume, it's too much. So what this kind of points to is that hormesis curve, and I know folks can't see me now, but actually you imagine I, the adaptation they can see you. They can see oh, the graph too. Yeah. Oh, awesome! Thank you. You're you're the man. So <laughs> thank you. You increase volume in this case, vis-a-vis um, -vis higher frequency training, and for some, everyone is going to have their own relationship between where they get the optimal growth relative to. With, so for some people, if you plotted like one times a week versus two versus three versus four versus five, they peak it twice a week. That'd be the best. The best way to train for them at least for this muscle in particular or one particular muscle um sorry i'm getting messages about my cpu being hot mm. i'll lose it um, yeah we, you, you broke up a couple times you broke up a couple times yeah, okay. but we were following along still ah. um so but someone else might find that peak if they were if they were examined and test out over time one two three four five six maybe even seven times a week they're going to do best at four or five. Yeah. So you got to you got to figure that out for yourself, and that's what this study is. Just so it's worth reiterating again and again and again because not every, it's like fortitude training, for instance. You know, it's a I have the basic I have two frequency versions in there for this reason. Huh. It's only three and four. You know, but two might be better for some people. So you can take the program and spread out the days if you want. Hmm. But I also have three volume tiers. Mm, yeah. for this reason because I, I knew this before this study came out but this study just is the best one that I know of substantiating this very notion that there's so much individuality and so you got to figure out what works for you you can't some people could train with the highest volume tier in my program others do the best from the lowest volume tier so and the thing that that I also have set up and this is why this is an aside but it relates is auto regulating your how you when you blast and cruise so some people, for them, they, higher frequency, higher volume they can handle, they might blast along and try to progress for five or six weeks before they take a break. Whereas someone else training at that frequency, they take a break more often hmm. because they tend to like basically backslide if they, if they keep going with that frequency and volume. And that's the thing. They did this in one of the studies from the previous slides, but what you don't always see, what we don't always know over the course of 8, 12, 16 weeks is what happened to some people. So someone might have been on a nice, they were growing and growing and growing for six or eight weeks, and then it was time for a break, and they needed a deload. They started getting sore, they started getting run down, their training efforts started sucking, but what they do is they just keep on training because it's a 16-week study. That's what you got to do, keep going. Yeah. And those last eight weeks are for shit, and they actually backslide. Either they don't make any gains or they over, literally overtrain and start to lose size. Mm. And that can indeed happen. So that's what you don't always see is what's going on in the middle. So being able to find a break in there, which basically over the long haul, if you take a one and a half week break over five weeks or one week break over those five weeks, your frequency is less on average because you took the break. Hmm. So that's a way to sort of adjust your frequency. So that's where autoregulation comes into play. There's some data looking at that. I, I don't have the slides or that I haven't covered those here. But anyway, so this is just a really nice study that confirms that 
we're all different. You got to find what works for you. This is why DC training works for some people and mountain dog training works much better for other people. Yeah. As an example. So let's hit that, uh, hit that last slide. This is sort of some more comp confirmatory stuff. All right. All right. We've got that up. So this isn't to say, you know, that you like, and we talked in the previous, you know, about how much the, um, the muscle soreness and damage can be, uh, can be work against you. You don't want to avoid those negatives mm -hmm. because there's some import in those. Those are the ones that do create the most damage. There's the aspect of a rep. Concentric is the lifting up. Eccentric is coming back down. There's more force per unit muscle during eccentrics. And interestingly enough, and this is what I have written there in the upper left of this slide, is that the contraction in terms of the quote unquote work, mm -hmm. you're not really doing work technically when you're lowering, but if you compare compare lowering of a rep of a weight versus lifting and consider that the same unit of work, you're like two and a half times more if quote unquote efficient during eccentric than concentric. One study, and this was done by my mentor back in the day when he was uh, working for NASA, showed that during a leg press where they compared lifting the weight with no lowering, so just the concentric versus lifting and lowering a normal rep up and down, up and down, all under your own power, it only added about 14% to the energy cost of the rep to lower it on your own. So eccentrics are they're energetically very inexpensive. So you, you don't you don't gain much in terms of like getting more reps, for instance, by like lifting and then you see some people just kind of dive bomb their reps, mm -hmm. just drop it right off the bat. Yeah. You gain a small amount, 14% isn't much. But the question is, how much or how important are those for the actual training gains that you can make? And the meta-analyses show this, generally speaking. There's different ways you can compare this with specialized devices, but the one of the best sort of basic bare bones studies mm -hmm. that I know of is one that was done by my mentor with some of his colleagues. Oh, one other thing before I get to that. Just to show you how little eccentrics affect fatigue. Take a look at that bottom most plot. You don't need to be able to see the details to get the idea here. Okay. So what they did was they took in, they took um, uh, and familiarized their subjects over the over a month, like once a week. They brought them in and got them used to this, and they put them on an isokinetic dynamometer, so fancy schmancy knee extension device. And you can set that up where it only you only have to do the concentric, and then there's oh, nothing yeah, on the yeah. way down. Yeah. Or, or you can you can set it up where you start and it just you start pushing and it pushes you down. I had to and do you that as hard as you can. I had to do that What's when that? I I had to do that uh, for a test when I had my ACL replaced. Probably a Cybex machine. There's there's several several brands out there. We had a Kincom one at um, Georgia when I was there. So okay. so this is this is a, they're, they're they're useful actually. If you could set up, there are some brands of resistance exercise equipment that that allow you to overload on the eccentrics. That would be badass. Oh, they're awesome. They're great, but they just people just don't like them. They're a little bit pricier and uh, they feel a little bit odd. But it's there's, it's an advantageous way to train. To I can be see that. It really is. So, but check out the plot here. So, what um what you see there is torque. So that's the the what was happening in terms of the force being produced about the knee joint. And they took them in on three different days. Um, actually, I think it was six different days, and they had them do an all-out set of what was actually 32 reps. Okay. So each of those eight points there represents the average of four reps. 
And if you look at the leftmost set, it's about one, if you can read that, there's an open squares and, and filled squares. The open squares shows the torque of the force production over the course of those 32 maximal concentric all-out reps. Okay. And there's like a 30% drop in force, roughly, which Oops, you'd expect. Yeah. So you're, yeah, so they're, they're fatiguing during the concentrics. And they tested them on three different bouts, and you can see each of those plots look pretty similar. Um, in fact, they're kind of a little bit lower um, after the, doing this. Maybe they're sort of losing their motivation. So those are the those open ones on the bottom. Those are concentrics. You can't produce as much force on a concentric okay. as you can on an eccentric. The, the filled squares are the 32 rep bouts. Those are all out eccentric only. So just battling against the machine when it drives your your leg down during a knee extension. Yeah. And the force actually tends to go up over the course of the bout, and it certainly and it ends up at a higher value at the end, or it's basically the same value as at the beginning. Thirty-two all-out reps with zero average fatigue hmm. over the course of the bout, and that's because there's some there's some uh, inhibition that's involved there. There's a protective neurological protective mechanism in place, so you don't tear something yeah. because you can produce so much force. But also, those so energetically inexpensive to do those. So you're not you're not you're not lowering the, or reducing the stimulus of the set by doing controlled eccentrics. What you're actually doing is requiring using muscle in a way that produces more force for whatever you're using, and it almost adds zero to your fatigue hmm. over the course of the set. You'll fatigue just as much with if someone lowered every rep for you. So. The question then becomes like, well, what happened if you just trained that way? Well, that's what Dr. Dudley and his uh, colleagues at NASA tried to figure out. They're trying to. This was actually all in, in a line of research trying to figure out how to hold on muscle mass, hold on to muscle mass with astronauts in spaceflight. Oh, okay. Yeah, so they're trying to figure out because you don't have. You know, there's no gravity in space. Yeah. Obviously, but you can create devices, and they have that will allow you to do concentric and eccentric reps, like normal reps with that eccentric action. So they wanted to, well, how important is that? Can we just make this easy and just have like a, you know, a flywheel that's momentum, it's all concentric, or do we need to have some eccentric involved? Yeah. So they had people do, um, train twice a week for 19 weeks, and uh, they're doing uh, both leg presses and knee extension, I think five sets of leg press for the knee extension, and, they, that was the basic workout for the lifting and lowering. And then they had two other comparative workouts. Okay. One was this would have been just horrible as a, as a, a you know, a, a lab assistant to do. Um, so they had them do, uh, oh, that's miss, there's a misprint right there. The middle, they had them do um, twice as many sets. Okay. 18 sets twice a week but only concentric. Okay. So they did like... It's so it's not supposed to lift and lower? Yep. They would. The, the middle one says con-con. Oh, I see. That's yeah, the, yeah. On the right one, it's it's lifting up, not down. Yeah. But I'm for, I, under the con-con, I put lift and lower. It shouldn't say that. Gotcha. I that. We're good. That's probably from my copy-paste here yeah. that I made. I had to like fabricate this figure from several other figures. Yeah. So... So the con ec on the left is nine sets regular twice a week for 19 weeks. Mm -hmm. The con con is 18. They doubled the volume. Wow. 
and the con is just the nine sets but no lowering. Okay. So what those bar graphs, graphs show is the change in muscle fiber type, fiber area in the, both the type ones and the type twos hmm. at, before versus after the 19 weeks of training. And they also made some measurements after one month of detraining just to follow up on that. Okay. So if you just look at the, uh, the bar graphs that have the lines, not the ones that are, that are more filled in, mm -hmm. but just have the diagonal lines, mm -hmm. we'll just kind of focus on those. Those are the most important for us. So if you look at uh, the leftmost side, you see about a, about 12% increase in the type 1s and about a 30% increase in the type 2s. Yeah. That's what you typically would see. These were untrained folks as well here. If you look at the con only, so all the way to the, uh, to the right, mm -hmm. you see a little bit less in the uh, type 1s and about half the increase in the type 2s. So those type twos didn't didn't grow nearly as much hmm. as, they, as without the eccentrics in there, and even when they doubled, and this is the middle condition, when they doubled the volume twice as many sets with no lowering. So this will be the the case where you see someone who just they push up and they just they're just dropping the weight and just like banging out the reps in a very uncontrolled fashion. Yep, see it all the time. You see it all the time. Well, this is this is this is that to the extreme where there's literally no lowering at all. Okay. They they were had the, the the type one fibers grew even less than with the uh, about or about the same as with the nine sets, and they still didn't get quite the same growth. It's pretty close, but it wasn't wasn't terribly. It was about the same, a little bit less in the type twos. Hmm. So even in doubling the volume, you didn't see much. Yeah. So, and what happens there, if you look down at the, uh, the, the more filled in bar graphs, mm -hmm. take a look at the type ones for that middle condition, the con con a month later, basically they're all of that, that small amount of fiber growth that they had was gone. Hmm. It, it was just, it, it disappeared. It went to nothing. Yeah. Whereas you look at the leftmost, the connect, the normal reps, the type ones held onto their size entirely yeah on average so that was a more like persistent maintenance of that growth it stayed yeah for a longer period of time that's what of course we want so in case you do have to take a deload or whatever what have you you've got growth that stays i wouldn't have been surprised if people talk about and there is evidence that some people experience sarcoplasmic hypertrophy hmm. this is what there's a guy named cody hahn who's done this study there's some issues with the study because they just looked at the people who grew and then they demonstrated that, that was the case. Half their subjects didn't grow from the protocol they used, but the half that did showed some evidence of sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. Um, because of the nature of that, I wouldn't be surprised at what was happening in those type twos, um, that that growth that they, they found there was glycogen, um, organelle, sarcoplasmic reticulum, the things that contribute to sarcoplasmic hypertrophy, not myofibular. Because they're doing, they had so much of an energetic demand and doing twice as much, twice the volume, mm -hmm. that that would make sense that the type ones would grow. And then once that energetic stress is gone, you just lose the glycogen, you lose the glycogen loading effect that comes from training. Glycogen levels would come back down without the energetic stress. You know, it's it's, it's an easier phenomenon to to remove and clear away the, some of those sarcoplasmic components versus the contractile protein which is a very, very highly organized myofibular construct within the muscle. Hmm. So doing the lowering 
gave you good growth that stuck much better. That makes and sense. Much better growth. Yeah. So the con, the con nine sets, the growth didn't stick. Look at what happened there on the rightmost. Um, basically, after the one month of detraining, they essentially lost all the size they had in the type twos. No kidding. Huh. So, yeah, it's basically totally gone. That happened essentially in the type ones too. So you've you've got it. So there's obviously clear advantage here is to doing the eccentrics. Yeah. And in this case. Um, that's a pretty reasonable program twice a week, nine sets. Yeah, that's a nice, you know, no one would balk at that. It's totally tolerable. That's the middle of the road. That's going to get you good growth from your average person. And we see here on average that it's a good idea to have those eccentrics in place. They're hmm. very important. They're energetically inexpensive and they create more force per unit muscle mass and they create some of the damage, which is part of that remodeling process. And note here, too, they did 19 weeks. So they were probably pretty sore at the first couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. But then they had 16, 17 weeks to actually grow. And they progressively overloaded, of course, yeah. in this study, too. So they did a long enough study to let people kind of get used to it, progressively overload them. And um, they showed here in one of the clearest fashions that I've seen that if you remove the eccentric from your rep, mm -hmm. so if you're diet bombing your reps and you're not, you're not controlling that eccentric, you're losing out on a very important aspect of what produces muscle growth. Yeah. Especially those type two fibers. It's nice and to see it. Muscle move. Yeah. It's nice to see it. Yeah. It's nice to see it. Cause I, I've learned that you've obviously learned that, uh, you, you know, it, I don't know, man, I think, I think part of that comes down to the ego lifting thing because mm -hmm. people want to keep pushing the way you have to use a lot. It takes a lot of energy, man, to control a weight on the negative. Psychological energy, but 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 in terms of metabolic cost, it doesn't. It doesn't. So if I were just to say get on the squat and just do, we had this uh, ride here in the Midwest called the Demon Drop, uh, and I thought of it recently. It was like a little box at the theme park, and it I, just I drops down, and then yes, uh, and free falling for like two seconds. Yeah, yeah. like I've seen yeah. some people squatting, like I probably did years ago too. So right. you're telling me that the metabolic expenditure of doing that versus really controlling it down isn't much different? Yeah. So here, here's what happens when people dive bomb things. Yeah. Um, you get a, uh, a stretch shortening cycle at play here. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of like like the, the best example of a muscle that was engineered to make use of the elastic energy that comes from that is is the Achilles ten, the, the the calf muscles, the plantar flexors that are attached to your Achilles. Yeah, your Achilles tendon is just a long spring, and you'll see in some of the best sprinters who have a lot of the factors all rolled into one to make them really fast. They a lot of times will have small calves. Hmm. The calf muscles aren't big because you don't need a lot of muscle there. What they have with having small calves is a very long spring. Ah. So they have a lot of Achilles tendon with which to harness elastic energy and, and use that so they can spring forward each I time see. each with each step. I see, I so, see where you're going. And and you see people that get on like to see the calf raise yep. and just bounce all over the place. Yeah. You can take outrageous as long as you don't tear your Achilles. You could take outrageous weight and just bounce it all over the place. Sure, sure. But you s slow that down to like a four-second rep, you know, two up and two down. It's a totally different story. Yeah. You'll feel it in the muscle. 
You're not you're not training your tendon, you know, you're training the muscle, so to speak. So you can you can't like if you think, well, I get a lot more reps when I go fast like that. <clears throat> yes, you do, because you're basically harnessing the energy of the free falling weight. Yeah. In ter- as in an elastic sense, and there's a reflex that's involved. There's a myotatic reflex that's involved, and we may have covered this on one of the. I know I covered it on one podcast, but this is what, for instance, you see in uh, people like volleyball players and people who have trained to do a lot of plyometrics is they have trained themselves to disinhibit and remove the inhibition from like really high drop jumps. Normally like you or me, like, you know, this feeling where you jump off something kind of high yeah. and you hit the, hit the ground. It's like, Oh shit. It was just like a giant shock where if someone is pretty nimble or athletic, they drop down and they just bounce. They just land softly or they bounce right back up. Sure. You can see some people who are really good in plyometrics. This is a really cool phenomenon. They have them drop, jump off a box, do a drop jump, mm-hmm. and then spring back up. And the higher the box, oh, yeah. the higher their jump. Yeah, yeah. So they actually, like, they could, maybe they have a 30-inch vertical, but you give them a drop, and they you can drop them off a 40-inch, and they can go 35 or 40 inches. You give them a 50-inch, they can go 40 inches. Yeah, I remember you, they, when, when we talked about the uh, central nervous system. Uh, yes. That's where we, yes, I do recall that now. Yeah. Yeah. So if you if you train that way with like dive bombing and like harnessing that stress shortening cycle, yeah. you learn how to use that energy to your advantage to move the weight through space and do reps. Yeah, that's cool. That's good, but that doesn't. You're not using the eccentric. The point is to use the weight as a way to stimulate stimulate the muscle in terms of force generation, then metabolic demand in the muscle, yeah. not just to get more reps. So. Form and tempo does does matter to some degree. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the general, they looked at them, you know, like between like 0.5 and 2 seconds or so per rep. There's no difference on average that you'll see. But I'm pretty sure if you took someone and just asked them, I don't think I've, th- I don't remember seeing this study. It may have been done where like they just said, go as fast as you can. It'd be kind of dangerous, to be honest. And compared that with someone who did really controlled reps mm-hmm. with maybe even like an infinitesimally short pause between between the eccentric and the concentric. Mm-hmm. So they're using muscular contractile power as opposed to the elasticity of the muscle and the tendon and those elastic components of the connective tissue. So anyway, it'll, it'll look like um, you're getting a lot more work out of dive bombing the weight because you can get a lot more reps doing that. And that's not, that's because you're harnessing the the energy of the falling weight mm-hmm. into the elastic recoil that lets you bring it back up yes and what you, what you see sometimes too is um if you do reps really fast like that when you come when you reach a fatigue point you'll just come to a screeching halt sure sure yeah so eventually eventually you 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 are in, incapable of getting enough elastic recoil and then the two two sources of energy the muscular fatigue catches up and eventually boom like you just can't get it up it you just can't move the weight anymore yeah that's, that's scary what, when you what, see somebody benching and you can see that coming they've got the barbell right. on them and you they boom to boom to boom and then they stop and, sudden, yeah. and they're ready to get one more and you, my question isn't are they strong enough to push it up but are they going to be able to get enough bounce <laughs> you know right right because you you can tell that the bounce is what's moving the weight as much as 
muscular strength. Yeah. Whereas yeah. someone who's slow and controlled, you'll see a fatigue curve. Yeah. Lyle McDonald. Really do. I don't know if you watched what Lyle's been. He's been just tearing into Mike Isertel in particular. <laughs> no, I haven't. Um, about yeah, reps and reserve and all that. But he's he makes a very important point, um, and he's demonstrating this in in videos that have been sent to him and some of his own training that rep speed or bar speed slows as you reach fatigue as if you take a set to, to muscular failure yeah. with a good slow tempo, without a doubt. Yeah. And, there's, and he hasn't even, like, I think he's waiting to throw this card because there's a whole body of literature looking at bar speed yeah. and how that is associated with reps and reserve and RPE. And he hasn't even called on the research. I know he knows it's there. He's just looking at, like, in the, in the gym, this is what sets look like. And you see the person, like the reps start to slow down. Mm-hmm. And if you're spotting them, then you're like, okay, like this person's got control of the weight. And they have a grinder. And then like they go here and like this is going to be the one. And then the, the weight doesn't just all of a sudden fall back down on them. Because it basically when you're – here's the way to think of it is when you're using that recoil, that stretch shortening cycle, it's free falling here. Yeah. And then it's only going up because it's been bounced back up. Sure. It's it's, it's – it's in free fall on the way up too. Yeah. Unless you have enough strength to bring it up. And if you if you're requiring on the bounce to get the thing moving rather than muscular power, you only get as much as you get out of that bounce. I agreed so, with you from the start. I think that I misunderstood yeah. you, but it was still nice to hear you explain yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. And I know I wasn't I've, I didn't think of it as that. It's, I've enjoyed but it. But that would be what unless people recognize what we just talked about. Yeah. You would they would think that they're getting a the the better the performance, the better the growth stimulus. Ah, uh, yeah. And if you just performance is just the number of reps, then you know, get them however you can. Yeah, yeah. And everyone we know not to do that. Yeah. Um, but that's some science underpinning this and this is why having a controlled eccentric from just this study and generally what you see in the literature, the eccentrics are important. You just don't want to do too much of them. Mm. So it's it's in a measured amount, and that's sort of the the bottom line here is that it's all a matter of finding. Like, and so this is why this this slide, the last one that was up, was but don't avoid the negatives. So I think this takes us to the summary here. All right, let me grab that the last one. And that is up. So this is just, I'll just kind of read through this, but this is sort of the basic idea. We're talking about training, finding the training dose for an individual. So damaging mount, damaging bouts. So the ones where you get sore from, they may not set in motion the protein balance in a trajectory that produces growth. So you do too much. This is from that very first study. You may be just using up your protein synthetic reserves to balance the breakdown that you've avoid that you caused. Yeah, and you can avoid this via this protective effect, this repeated bout effect, by easing. So just a mis, there's a misspelling there. Easing into a program. Yeah, I didn't even correct easting as a. Apparently that's a word. Easting to go east. Um, so ease into a program. You can you can still get the growth if you just spend a couple extra weeks or so working your way into it. Maybe even less. Training variety, the change in the reps, the set configuration can alter training volume and, and muscle protein synthesis, but this might not be to your advantage. Hmm. So in that last study, the training, the, the, the muscle growth was inversely correlated to training volume when they varied things around and this increased the training, training volume. So the variety is great. That's awesome for making f- training fun, and that's super important. But if you end up doing too much, in that for that for an individual that can go against you yeah so 
more importantly, look at the big picture, training volume slash frequency. Oh, my spelling was awful. I can't type. I can spell. I just can't type. <laughs> training volume slash frequency when training to failure. And that's worth noting. They were taking these sets to failure are the parameters of greater import here. Hmm. So in that study comparing five times versus two or three times a week, there was a substantial difference between those two conditions. Yeah. And you saw a substantial difference for many people in terms of how much growth they made on one versus the other. So if you're thinking about like, what do I really want to experiment with to figure out if my program's working? Mm -hmm. um, think first about total number of sets and how many times you're doing that over a week or several weeks. Yeah. So frequency or total training volume and, and maybe even how you distribute that versus, well, I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to do muscle rounds. I'm going to do pump sets. I'm going to do some of John's intensification techniques. I'm going to do rest pause sets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those, those things are nice and those are good. That is a form of variety, which is important. But if you're doing too much volume, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's just too much. So you might be better off with a more simple program or, or it's just a lower volume program or a higher volume pro program. Um, so think of the big rock, so to speak. So the variety in terms of the sets is important, I think, for a more advanced person especially mm -hmm. to find the exercises that work for them. It's a more advanced training um, way, pr perspective to have. But think big picture first. Am I doing too much? Like I'm, if I go in, I do every cool exercise that I've seen on the people that I follow on Instagram show me, you know, all the weird, weird things. And, and I have lots of those on mine. Yeah. Just don't don't do 15 of those in a workout. Right. You know, the, the idea is not to just do more is better and make it all sort of funky and weird. Think big picture in terms of volume and frequency. And then, uh, but the last thing though to consider is um, don't avoid, again, another typo here. I'm going to correct all this stuff. We can even, don't avoid the eccentric. They in the right amount are a vital component of the, of the growth stimulus. Those eccentric reps are what you want. Mm, yeah. You need to be there to some degree. Yeah. So as people have said, and this is just the, the data is there now. People can see some evidence of this is having a good control of your rep where you're controlling the eccentric is something you want to have in place. And then you can, and then of course, once you've got that as your sort of singular unit, the rep itself, then look at the big pictures of the total training volume and the frequency, et cetera. And the set configuration, whether it's a cluster set or a drop set or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Gotcha. So, Yeah. So those are some things that I think people probably dig knowing. Yeah, yeah. That the scientists aren't like off their rockers, you know, doing shit that's so esoteric and impractical. Like the stuff actually applies. Yeah. Oop, I'm gonna move you a little bit here again. There we go. Got you centered. My brain is full, Scott. That's some good stuff. This is the kind of podcast I feel like I want to go back and uh, maybe watch this one a couple times. Uh, I I know we we have covered some of this stuff before. Uh, and, and the, I, I appreciate how you kind of tied it all together today. Uh, and if I were to sum it up from my bro perspective as to what I've taken from it so far, it would be to, well, as we mentioned at the end, consider how I'm performing my reps, but then really considering my volume, uh, actually my, my, well, my frequency, my volume. And, uh, and then from there, man, just how much variability there can be within that. That'd be mm -hmm. like kind of the big stuff I'm seeing. 
Yeah, and an insight too that kind of tease apart is that, and this I didn't have any studies look at this directly is that if you if a certain how you train with what frequency you train a given amount of volume is going to impact how sore you get for those workouts. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mentioned earlier, take those fifteen sets and do it spread it over five sets a day for three days, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Yeah, that's going to avoid that excessive damage that would come. This is where the the topic of junk volume comes into play. Sure. And somewhere in there, I don't think I read it, but I I put in a, the the famous Lee Heaney quote of "Stimulate, don't annihilate." Yeah. So, you know, in terms of like on a workout per workout basis, after you're past that protective effect, or if you're someone who get, still gets sore, there's some sort of optimal stimulus to propel yourself forward in terms of the protein balance you get each time. Yeah. So, and this is Dante used to say this all the time that these are growth. He used to call them growth opportunities. Hmm. That's why he like DC training is more of a higher frequency type of training, is that you want to get find the optimal volume per workout to create the maximal propulsive force, so to speak, from that stimulus, the maximum of maximum adaptive propulsive force. We'll call it. There's a fancy term for you. I like that. I'm creating shit. You know, like <laughs> hashtag that adaptive propulsive stimulus. And do that as frequently as you can recover from. So, and, and it may be for some people, and here's where he's kind of figuring this out, that they do a given like a 10-set workout for a muscle group. And if, you, if, you, if they wait five days, the first couple of days are sort of in the hole, they're recovering. But yeah. then they've got satellite cell activity that's at role here, at play here, et cetera, et cetera. And if they wait five days and do that every five days, that gives them a greater accrued adaptive propulsive force. That gives them a greater adaptation by with that volume, with that spacing, as opposed to maybe the same volume but spaced too close together. Mm-hmm. Because you see everyone – one other thing that varies with this muscle soreness thing, it's such a fascinating topic, is some people get sore. You've heard people say they get sore and they're sore like – Eight or t- t- 12, 15 hours later, the next day, yeah. and it's gone two days later. Oh, yeah, and yeah. And then some people are, yeah, so some people are sore for three or four days, mm-hmm. and it just kind of lingers. I'm one of those, I get sore, and it just lingers for a long period of time. So that's something to consider, too, hmm. is, you know, like how long are you, if you if you train really hard and dig a little bit of a hole for yourself, you may come out of that in a matter of 24 hours. So waiting five days to do that, may mean that those last three or four days between workouts hmm. are ones where you're getting ahead of the game and you're growing. Hmm. So let that happen. Don't do a workout before that's occurred. Yeah. Because you're wasting the the adaptation that's been set in motion from that first workout. You may have just gotten back up Whereas to baseline. Some, yeah. Or, or you may, exactly, if you train too early, if you yeah. train too frequently. So you have to figure out, well, it'll be better than like, what if I cut that in half and then I don't get sore at all? Mm-hmm. And then I can do you know the same volume or a little bit more. And this is what the data kind of shows too, is that and if if you look at the twist the data around that it's been done in the reviews and meta analyses is that higher frequency training tends to allow people to train with more volume. Hmm. And you can imagine this too if like you tried to do 15 sets and it destroyed you, you might be able to do instead of five sets three times a week, seven sets three times. Yep. A week. Yeah. Sure. So then. That and that's what people find in the in the trenches, and that's what the research generally suggests as well, is that it permits higher training volume that you can recover from. So now you're getting 21 sets three yeah. times seven in a week as opposed to 15. 
as long as you're recovering, getting ahead of the game before the next workout comes around, you're a winner. Yeah. So the more you can get away with and still recover, the better, generally speaking. I like it. If uh, if you're yeah. good to uh, finish this topic up here, I have a question for you. Yes, we have that question from your Patreon. Yes, yeah, we started a Patreon, guys. Uh, Think Big Bodybuilding Media. We'd love any support that you would uh, like to give. Uh, I would like to make the Patreon more interactive as uh, time rolls on. I figured out the message part uh, now. So uh, I'm able to, to, to leave like messages to the group, and I'm able to interact with everybody individually. So if you do have questions for any of the shows, uh, anybody who is a Patreon member, I encourage you to feel free to ask me there, and I'll try to make sure that we uh, highlight those questions to get them on. This is from Dallas Paul. Now, you, do you know who Dallas is? Does he, uh, does he post do. on Fortitude, I- right? I, I I just I think I know him from Facebook. Oh, okay. It's it's somewhere in the in the flurry of social media names. Okay. Um, it's a cool name. So I remember. I definitely remember the name. Yeah. Anybody named Dallas. Period. Is I think that's it's, yeah. it's a good name. Yeah. Tough name. Yeah. It is. It's a yeah. It's a cool name. I like it. Yeah. All right. So uh, Dallas has when he says. Um. I've been going back and listening to old Muscle Minds and Blood, Sweat, and Gear podcasts on YouTube. Uh, On episode 78 of Muscle Minds, Dr. Scott had 12 tips to be your best. I remember that one. That was good. Uh, One of those 12 was to not coach hop or switch plans before you had realized any potential gains. I've also heard him mention before that cycling between fortitude, DC training, and mountain dog training would be beneficial because of the different styles. How do you optimally balance these two? Uh, And then he gives some suggestions as in like uh, wait to switch until you hit a plateau or switch every 16 to 20 weeks or an arbitrary length of time to increase frequency or volume. Uh, and possibly provide new novel stimulus. That's a good one. That's a good, and those he's actually already got the answers. So, and it's gonna, but as everything, pretty much, it's gonna depend on the person. Okay. So, so some people, some people who like more frequency, maybe they. Um, one way this could be explained biologically is there's some variance in the. Uh, um, the dopamine receptor, I think there's like seven, seven different uh, major isoforms, of the dopamine receptor, which determines your, your sort of need, generally speaking, from a personality perspective for oh. novelty and newness and, and thrill-seeking activity. Okay. So if someone needs something new and novel for them, they might be going along and making good progress and start to get bored even though things are going well. Yeah. In that case... You know, as long as it's not two weeks in, right? They're still doing okay. Um, they probably should switch just to keep the novelty in place because for those people who need, who want and desire that novelty, that's going to impact their training efforts. So they might end up doing, let's say, a one dog, a one mountain dog training program lasts twelve or sixteen weeks. Yeah. And 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 then they could pick up another one and keep going. But they're already getting a little bit tired of, of John's training program. For, and this is nothing against John. The person just needs new novelty. Yeah. Some people just need something different all the time. So in that case, switching would be a good thing. It's not that the, the mountain dog training has stopped working. Mm-hmm. 
per se. It's just it's gonna it's gonna start working stop working for them because they're gonna start getting a little less enthusiastic about the training. Yeah. Or simply because even if they're able to buckle down, they're sort of disciplined, and they could keep doing a mount, another mountain dog training program. If they can t- switch to DC and keep gaining and be happier doing so, do it. Yeah. Absolutely. So make that change because they're just kind of keeping their mojo working and moving from one program to another. Um, some, some people, and this will depend on the person's experience, well, I'm just thinking of another scenario, where someone, a uh, lot of John's programs, it depends on which ones, but a lot of John's programs, you'll have like um, a baseline of like three workouts that you might do in a week. And then he'll have another three or maybe two different number of pump sets. And sorry if I'm bastardizing this. I've I helped John with write his book, but I haven't done a lot of mountain dog training until recently. Mm. But so you you can you can vary the volume of training that you do depending on which one of those optional workouts you do. Mm. So he has flexibility, sort of in the way that I have volume tiers. He's got flexibility in his program. So someone else who's going along might have to do several of John's training programs to figure out how to apply apply those to their own recovery resources yeah. to ba- best make the gains. So if they do one of John's programs and they just do everything he says, which is probably something I would do, you know, just like, well, I'll just do it all, and it's way too much, Yeah. well, then they should. They might think, well, you know what? John actually put these options in here for a reason, probably because some people just can't. They train so hard that they can't recover. Yeah. You know, For them, a set of an RP, RPE of 10 is really an RPE of 10, where some people are leaving three or four reps in the tank. Sure. Compared to someone else. So they do better to stick with it, to try to learn how to tailor John's programs to get the most gains for themselves. Okay. Um, same thing goes with, with DC training or, or, or fortitude training. Some people just love my training pro- program, and some people, like I've had a number of people when they first time they did it, and they realize this for the most part, they just said, I'm gonna, more is better, I'm gonna do volume tier three, the, the turbo version and they just destroy themselves and they're just like they're a wreck after five or six weeks that's yeah. just not the right version of the program for them so i wouldn't just do like a typically i suggest somewhere around an eight week full um blast and cruise period that's where most people land but it's not always mm-hmm. so if someone does that and they're just a wreck by the end and they just decide well i'm gonna i'm gonna switch to dc training mm-hmm well, actually, the DC training might for them be a, a D volume, mm-hmm. and they might start growing from DC training. Think, well, the DC training is much better than Fortitude for me. It could be, well, you know what, you just haven't learned how to best apply Fortitude training and choose the appropriate version and volume tier for you. Yeah. So they can have a learning a learning curve to have to have there. So for some people, they just need to ride it out and figure out how to how to eke out and squeeze out the best gains that they possibly can from whichever one of those programs they're using. Yeah. So kind of depends on interest level. It also depends on by the time you've gone like let's say you did like let's say you did a 16 week bound dog program, a, an 8 week for, a DC training program and 8 weeks of fortitude training. There's 32 weeks. Yeah. Like you started that right after a series of shows, then you've only got about, you know, with some breaks in there, you've only got like 16 20 weeks before you're start you're going to do a next show. Absolutely. So You've done all three, um, you know, you're going to have to pick one to diet in. So yeah. which one you use is going to is going to matter, too. So even if you did mountain dog training on your entire off season 
you might find that you can hold your strength and your muscle mass really well with a higher volume fortitude training and you decide to do that to dive in for a show because you have that experience or you might want to say you know how can i i want to stick with mountain dog training dance with the one who brung you which dante said which i've said a million times i think i just heard skip say it on one of the blood sweat and gears mm-hmm. makes so stick with mountain dog training that's what got you there and just modify it my preference would be reduce the volume don't reduce the effort levels yeah. stick with the quality of the stimulus but reduce the quantity and ride that into your show so all of a sudden you're not like okay what the fuck do i do now i went from you know 16 sets in a workout or 10 sets in a workout with john and now i'm doing like one rest pause set with dc training is this enough like what's going to happen here oh yeah i dropped my calories too like that's just that's just uh programmatic chaos yeah it would i think be. That, that's not a smart way to like a transition from off to off season to pre-contest so it's going to depend on the person depend on their attention levels or their attention deficit levels their desire for novelty how much they like the gains they're getting mm. um and some people you know you're only going to gain so much too yeah. you know most people in an off season here's the thing the reality of it is not like you can't just like continually make noticeable gains for years on end most people will diet down and they'll go again you know yeah so you only have maybe nine months through which you're going to like push in an off season before you diet in for a show for most people absolutely so so a lot of ways to do it. There's no right or wrong. It just kind of depends on the person. Just like, you know, five five times a week for three sets is not the perfect program for everybody. Yeah. You know, sticking with mountain dog training until you're sure you haven't made any gains because you did it for three years straight may not be the smartest move for some people, whereas others might have, they might like, and that's what happens with gains the more advanced you get is literally just like Jordan's a perfect example of this. You know, he's actually switched gears now very recently. He's going to, He's going to drop back to kind of a TRT approach. Yeah. He just posted this on his, yeah, I don't know if you heard this, but, but you know, for years, eking out like one or two reps per workout is a total victory, mm. you know? So for someone at that level, trying to progress from, you know, 98 to 99% of his genetic poten- enhanced genetic potential, there, there's no, like, you can't just be hopping around for thing, from one thing to another. Right. You need to be very, very precise and controlled and stick with the same programmatic design and just vary it so you can gradually move up rep by rep over the course of months. You know, an extra 10 kilos over two years is substantial for him on basic core exercises that he comes back to. For sure. So, anyway, that's a prolonged answer, but it kind of depends on you. It's good. So. All right. Well, in that case, let's wrap up here uh, for another uh, podcast here at Think Big Bodybuilding Media. Of course, check out uh, our sponsor, truenutrition.com. Uh, our code is ADVICES. And uh, of course, go to fortitudetraining.net. We talked a little bit about Scott's training plan today. Uh, look at his book. It's at uh, byobbcoach.com. Or you can find it, uh, Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach by Dr. Scott Stevenson, available over at Amazon, hardcover, uh, which is great. Scott, it has been a pleasure, man. I'm I'm, uh, really grateful to be back on the show with you. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm glad we actually had a little extra time because I could put some more time into like putting these slides together and kind of make this 100th episode. Um, Should we give them the bad news too? Bad news. That like this is going to be it. Like after the hundred and third, we're just done. Like we're hundred second. We, that'll be it. We're shutting it down. Okay. Here's the deal, Scott. So we're recording this on. 
April Thursday, Fool's Day. right? Yes, April Fool's Day. But oh, people, it's April Fool's Day. Never mind. We're not stopping. The joke wouldn't like, work because anyway. it doesn't come out until tomorrow. <laughs> I forgot to tell you. I know, <laughs> but it's still going to work. It's still going to work. People will be like, why would these assholes like, the lie to us? It's not e- <laughs> April Fool's Day was yesterday. <laughs> you can still do April Fool's or, and like retroactively like that. It still works because this is April Fool's Day. So... Well, it's just like it's like a bomb, you know. You set a timer on it. It's like a you know twenty four. This is a bomb that will go off for weeks on end as people watch the podcast. So right. All right. It's a much better April Fool's joke for that reason. Well, thanks, man. I'll see you. All right, man. Later.